Let's look to the Lord in prayer. The only Father, we just sang with our lips that all we have is Christ. We sang the concept that nothing else matters in this world compared to having the one thing that we most desperately need. Yet I find in my own life, and I'm sure we all find in our lives, that many times throughout the week we don't live just like we sang. Thank you for the Gospel of Mark and how it clearly shows us what Christ came to accomplish. The beauty of the Gospel, the way that ideas he challenged and changed and gave us an opportunity to think in a way that we were not thinking before. So may your words sink deep into our lives and may we live a life fully dedicated to you. In your great son's powerful name we pray. Amen. Now, that was awkward, wasn't it? I don't know about you, but that was probably the hardest 35 seconds of my life, to be standing up here watching you guys all look at me and me look at you guys and go, what are we doing here? Many of you were trying to fill in those moments of silence with something, weren't you? You were giving me motive for what I was doing, like, say something, Tim, anything. You know, it'd be nice to hear something. Even if you mess up and stutter, it's better than silence. If I would ask for a show of hands, too, how many of us silence is awkward for us, isn't it? That was just 35 seconds. I actually timed it on my watch, and when it buzzed, I knew we were over. But it felt like hours, didn't it? The reason why we did that to start off with is during the years of the intertestimonial period, it was roughly 400 years, where when the Old Testament was done being written and the New Testament had yet to be written, that God did not speak audibly or through the voice of a prophet. And so you literally had 400 years of silence, not just 35 seconds of silence. And during that time, the religious leaders of the Israelite people who wanted them to stay faithful to what God had called, the religious leaders who wanted to make sure the people followed the Mosaic law, started to fill in voices and rules into that silence. And we're going to find in this passage of Scripture here in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus is going to speak into that world and correct the things, the false ideas that had filled in in those gaps. Jesus is going to step in to culture and speak with authority. He's going to say, I am the one that has the authority. No different than one time in my own life, um, my daughter, when I was teaching over at Faith, she asked me a question about dress code. And she's like, Jesus, is that what the rule is? And I'm like, Hannah, it is. I wrote the rule. I, I can explain to you what the rule is, and I'm the one that had to enforce it. And she was still kind of questioning, does that? I'm like, Hannah, I wrote it. I have the authority to tell you what to do. Now, I'm not comparing myself in any way, shape, or form to Jesus, but Jesus had the authority to speak here. And the big idea we're going to talk about today is this, that God, the Son of Man, 
has been given all authority by his Father. The Son of Man has been given all authority. We're going to see in the book of Mark that Jesus is focused on his mission. And he's revealing now what the Son of God is to the world. And he's going to be challenging false ideas of his day and showing that authority has been given to him to speak the truth. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and we'll be reading verse 13. He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. In order to understand this passage, we have to understand the false idea that is prevalent at this time. The first false idea that's prevalent at this time is that there's going to be two different classes of people. Now, this idea is not too far off, but if you skew it in the wrong way, you become a totally different ending. There's two classes of people as a false idea, that there were righteous, and we're going to explain what they meant by righteous, and there's sinners. To understand what was meant by the term righteous, we're not talking about a God-given righteous. We're talking about a man-centered righteous. And we see this in Romans chapter 9, verse 10, uh, 1 through 3 here. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And you can just listen as I read. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, meaning the Jewish people. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Pharisees are going to be adding, and the religious leaders are going to be adding a righteousness that was not a God-giving righteousness. It was a righteousness that came out of an idea of works, not faith. And I want to stop right here real quick because there's too many times in our, as we read the Bible, we kind of put ourselves into different people. Some people some feel like maybe they're like more like Peter as he responds to things, or I'm like this person, I'm like that person. And as I've been doing this study, the more I study it, the more I started to realize I have a lot of common with the Pharisees. And we're gonna, we need to understand this as we go through, and I'm, hopefully as I go through as well, we'll start to understand in our own way we struggle with things. But before we go too far, we need to understand what's going on here. We have a tax collector. Jesus is calling a tax collector to follow him. Now, in order to understand what is going on in the background here as well, we have to understand tax collectors. Now, even in our own society, there's not too many people that like tax collectors. I don't know if there's too many people that, hey, you work for the IRS, and that's like really, you know, that's a game changer at the party where everybody now wants to hang out with you type of deal. But IRS workers are not the most popular Tax collectors are not the most popular either, but even in this day, it was even far worse than that. Tax collectors were Jewish people who were working for the country that came in and took over Israel. They were working for the enemy. Not just working for the enemy, they were working in a way that was helping the enemy prosper and buy the weapons and the tools to keep them in bondage. And on top of that, if you were a tax collector, the way you made your money was if Rome said it was $100 a month, you added about $10, $15, $20, or maybe $30 more than that, and that's where you got your money from. And on top of that even more, most of the people at this time are going to be poor, poor, uneducated people, very illiterate. 
They're going to understand some parts, but you're not going to have incredibly the middle class not necessarily existing so much. And so you took someone who was a Jewish person, maybe in the same boat as you, poor, struggling to get by, and all of a sudden, boom, they're rich because they're taking money from you and exploiting you to keep Rome in power. And so tax collectors many times are viewed as turncoats, as traitors, as being not faithful to the cause so, so much. I mean, imagine put yourself in this place. Your son or daughter, because you couldn't pay your taxes, has now been taken into slavery, and here comes your friend who you thought was your friend asking for more money again. You're not going to like that person very much at all. And Jesus comes and he says to so this person who was an outcast, worldly speaking, follow me. Now, nothing too f- yet has happened that's really going to f- mess the waters because you could rationalize in your mind when he called Levi, his surname is Matthew is his other name, when he calls Levi to himself, maybe he's going to repent. Remember Zacchaeus? He was the wee little man, you know, that couldn't see Jesus, so he climbed up in a tree. Concept I was confronted afterwards. He's not the shortest man in the Bible. You got Nehemiah, Nehemiah, and things like that. So for those of you in your minds who are wondering, he was not the shortest man concept, but he was a short man, but he, he was able to give back at least four times of what he had taken. So we're talking about wealthy people. And imagine even the separation is going to take place there as well between almost the haves and the haves-nots, as we even call it in our society today. As we continue to keep reading here, verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is hanging out with the sinners in this world. And the Pharisees look at who Jesus is hanging out with saying, these these evil people, these horrible people are going to start to then, in a way, make you then corrupt. And the world is looking at Jesus and saying, you can't hang out with them because you're not fitting in the boat of what we think the Messiah is supposed to look like. You're not fitting in with what we, how things are supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be condemning them, not hanging out with them. But I want to be clear, though. Every single time Jesus hung out with a tax collector and a sinner, two things happened. One, they went away convicted, or two, they became a follower. Either way, the response was made. When Jesus hung out with people, he hung out and a change happened. We know there was opportunities where he came and he went to these people. It's interesting, too, in our own world, where is it that the gospel seems to take root and change lives faster than anywhere else? Is it not the jails where people have come to their end and they understand they're a sinner? Where they have gotten to the point where they go, I know I've done wrong. It's literally right in front of me every time I turn around. But where is it that the gospel is so difficult to share? Is it not with people who think they have it all together? Who think that, hey, I've got my life solved. I don't need to add the gospel. I've got everything else. I'm on easy street. And Jesus here is speaking into this world, saying, I have authority to tell you the truth here. In verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees When he saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. This call is a call of repentance. Those who are righteous don't feel that they need to repent of everything because we have it all together. Those who understand their their true plight and their true state 
truly get this. But we need to understand who these Pharisees were, because sometimes Pharisees get a, a bum rap in the whole deal of the Bible. The Pharisees were a group of people that oversaw the synagogue. Now, remember that I'm going to quiz you when we get to a little bit later about who oversaw the synagogue. The synagogue were the meeting places throughout the nation of Israel where the Israelite people would come and hear the Word of God. What we're going to see is the Pharisees are going to be people that are going to be focused on piety, learning, and faithfulness to the Mosaic law. We would call them today the more of the religious right aspect of that culture. Now, the Sadducees who are in charge of the temple are going to be a little bit more of the religious left. Um, their, their claim to fame is that they don't believe in the resurrection, which later on in the Scripture one time they asked Jesus a question about the resurrection, which is incredibly ironic. Um, but in this whole world, we have the Pharisees in charge of the synagogue, Sadducees in charge of the temple. Now, the Pharisees looked at the Mosaic law to make sure that no one came close to breaking the Mosaic law. And they were also very, very concerned with the strong Greek influence that was affecting the culture around them. This Hellenistic culture that was coming in, the Greek influence coming in and affecting whether it was the kids, whether it was their way of thinking, and they were trying their best to keep back the Greek way of thinking coming into the world around them. I mean, kind of if you listen not that far, it's kind of what we're trying to do as well, aren't we? Trying to keep back the world from influencing our own thinking. But as we do that, just like the Pharisees, they're going to start adding and defining some of those silent times in the Word of God. Areas where we go, am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do this? Am I, is this something we are okay to do or not to do? And before you know it, we fill in those silent gaps. The other gap came as well as the Pharisees were adding, as we would call it, religious uh, laws to the Mosaic law. You're going to get a gap that is separated between those who know the law and are obeying it and those who have no earthly clue what it is because it keeps adding more and more and there's no way that we can keep it. And that gap even goes even further. What we're going to see now as we move on in verses 18 through 22, the second false idea, the second false idea being this, religious discipline imposed by man enhances righteousness. Religious discipline imposed by man is going to enhance righteousness. So we see here in verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting. Um, at this time, the, uh, the Mosaic law had required one fast to be done a year, and that fast was to be done on the Day of Atonement, the day the Israelite people went before the Lord and asked forgiveness of their sins. They were supposed to be a day of reflection, a day of denying ourselves because we understand the severity of our sin. But by this time, the Pharisees most likely were fasting at least twice a week just to make sure in a way that we have it covered, as if this religious ritual was somehow going to secure our righteousness. Now, something, though, that's very interesting, one of the spiritual disciplines in our country that we don't follow, and much to our own perils, the concept of fasting, do we ever deny ourselves anything? I mean, usually our denial is, I won't go out to eat today, I'll eat the stuff that I have at home. I mean, that's like, well, I'm really suffering today, you know? And we look at these things and we go, is that really what... American culture has started to shape and mold our lives because there's something that happens in our lives. If you've ever had an opportunity to fast, the first day seems to go a little bit easier. 
The second day is a little bit hard. The third day, your body's going, what in the world are you doing to me? Stop. Stop this. Your body is going, and your stomach is saying, give me food now, and I mean now. And you know what is interesting? The thoughts that come through your mind in prayers are things like, do I crave the Spirit power? Do I crave the Word of God in my life as much as I'm craving this food? Would my soul, if I spent three days not meditating on the Word of God, be crying out, give me God now? Do we do that? Or are we so busy in our lives that we don't even set aside times? And the Pharisees wanted to make sure they set aside times, but again, they're missing something. We see here, verse 18 again, and the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, it's interesting here, he's including it to a wedding. If any of you have ever been to a wedding, I was one, there was a wedding here on Friday that I was at, and when the weddings are over, you always have a celebration time afterwards, unless you go to a wedding where they're really trying to save money, and then they say, we're going to practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. But usually at weddings, there's a celebration, because you're excited about the union that just took place, and we celebrate. A little bit that's going on in this passage as well, we see that the Pharisees are fasting, and John's disciples are fasting praying that God would forgive them their sins and that they would become one with God all the time while the Son of Man is right there. And he's saying, your religious fervor that you're doing, you're missing the Son of Man who's right here in your midst. This is a time of celebration. A time will come when we will fast, but not now. And another thing in this as well, we see the beauty of this, where Jesus is using an analogy here. When We're going to get into this new and old analogy the old being the Mosaic law, the new is the new covenant that's coming in here, and we're seeing how Jesus is here to change and to give clarification to what's going on. And notice how he says this in verse 21, no one sews a new piece of unshrinking cloth into an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and worse tears made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. We see here rather, rather clearly, there's a new era coming. The kingdom of God is coming. This is a time of celebration. This is not a time where we're, where we're self-reflecting. It's a time of celebrating what God is doing, and he's revealing himself to the people. Yet we see here clearly that some are missing it. Now the next false idea we're going to talk about is an idea that is a very sacred thing. It's something that to this day we don't follow to our own peril, but it's something that the Jewish people is probably the most sacred day of the whole week, a day that even took preparation that needed to be done. Verse 23 here, and on the Sabbath. The false idea that Jesus is going to go right into the forefront of this is the false idea is this, that man was made for the Sabbath that man was made for the Sabbath. By now in the Jewish culture, the Sabbath had become a burden. Um, To give you an example what I mean by this, so in one of the Ten Commandments, it was you do not work on the Sabbath, all right? The Sabbath is a day that was set aside for the Lord. Well, in order to make sure that we're not working on the Sabbath, even the Pharisees came up with, with rules to give people clarity, 
to give people understanding what does it mean to work. And one of the ones that they found, if you were a scribe and you wrote, if you wrote more than two letters or erased more than two letters, they were considered work. And we look at that kind of stuff and we go, really? You know, does that mean when, if I was teaching and after the third letter that was written by one of my students, I go, now we're working, you know, now the work has begun. And we look at these things and we kind of go, really? I don't get that concept we're going to see in our own hearts and our own minds, we have that exact same mentality. So here's what's happening. On the Sabbath, Jesus, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Now we're going to stop there real quick. So they're on their way to the Sabbath. A couple things here. Scripture is silence, but silent here, and Tim's going to fill in some of the gaps here. All right, now this is Tim talking, all right? So this is me just in my own mind thinking here. So the disciples are on their way to the synagogue, right? Usually when you wake up in the morning, you eat something. Okay, well, they haven't eaten anything yet. Disciples are on their way to the synagogue. And so in my mind, I'm going, are they so focused on wanting to be and hear about God and His Word that food that day didn't really matter? We're on our way to the synagogue. Why, why get up and get ready? We want to be where God's Word is going to be spoken. Maybe. I don't know. That's just my, my speculation. But as they're going along through here, the disciples reach over, and according to Deuteronomy 23, 25, they're doing what they have every right to do. They're not stealing. God had said, as you're, in God's Word, it says there in Deuteronomy, that as you're walking through a field, you can grab some of the grain that is there and eat it, rub it between your hands. As the kernels are there, you may eat the grain. That's not stealing. And so what we see here is the question, are they working? Because if rubbing my hands together to break the chaff off the grain and allowing the kernel to there, am I sowing a crop? Am I doing work? Am I not doing work? And the, the challenge that is made here, the Pharisees seeing this, say, look, why they are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, it was not unlawful according to the Mosaic law, but it was unlawful according to their traditions that they had added. And then Jesus is going to say to them, have you never read? Not, don't you remember? He says, have you never read? Meaning, like reading it would have helped you out. And he's talking to the Pharisees, the group that has studied the Scripture, and he says to them, have you never read? Meaning, this is clear, but yet we miss things as well. And he tells a story. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, he entered the house of God in the time of Abirath, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful but for the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Now, give you what's happening here. David and Saul, um, right now in this situation, this story, were arch enemies. Saul is out to kill David. David is literally running for his life, and when you're running for your life, you don't have time to take a lot of food with you. All right, And so literally it's that I grab food, I eat it, and I got to keep moving. And as they're running for their lives, they come to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is not in Jerusalem at this time. It was elsewhere. And as they get to the tabernacle, they're starving. They're hungry. This was not at a time you could run out to the little quickie mart and grab something for his followers. This was all the bread we had in the place, the bread that was available. David eats it even though it was only meant for the priest. Now, to put this in, the, in our mindset of what does this look like for today, I'll be roughly done around noon, give or take, depending on how the Spirit moves, but I'll be roughly done around noon, 
If one of you right now were to fall out of your seat and need CPR, we would not say, stop. They need to deal with it on their own. We've got God's Word to handle. No, we would stop what we're doing. I would stop. We'd come down and try to get the person back to life. We wouldn't say, I'm sorry, because the Word of God is more important than any individual. No, we would say there and go, no, we understand without a doubt that religious and ritual practices fall short to moral obligation to feed someone. You know, there was nothing sacred in and of itself about that bread. What it was consecrated for was different. The bread is bread. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you've got things backwards, completely backwards. And he says, to show you that I have authority, he reminds them, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To understand that, we have to understand back to the creation order. Man was created on day six, and man was created for God. Day seven was when we get the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was not something that was to be a burden. The Sabbath was a thing to bring life. The Sabbath itself was a time of restoration. To give you a couple things here real quick, the Sabbath was a sacred insti- is a sacred institute that must be embraced as a privilege, not as a burdensome command. The Sabbath was designed to be an advantage for us to rest our bodies and our souls. And Jesus says, listen, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the ability to speak into this. Now, this last, uh, last week, um, I had the privilege of uh, going on a, a Sabbath retreat. Now, being very candid of the way my mind works and the way I think about things, which may scare you when we're done with this, but the way I think about things is this. I really struggle in my life of being still. I, the, the hardest verse in my life is to be still and know that I am God. I, I don't get that concept. I struggle with that. And so going on a Sabbath retreat where you're spending like four days, four to five days, that you're just going to be still, honestly, the thing went through my mind, I'm just going to be lazy all week, I guess, just sit around. Like, what do you do? One of the things, too, the Romans, when the way they looked at the Jewish people, they hated the Jewish people for many reasons, but one of the reasons they hated them was because they took a day off, a complete day off. What kind of person does that unless you're lazy? Is what the Roman culture thought. And so I'm entering this Sabbath, and I'm sitting there on Monday kind of going, all right, what in the world are we going to do today? Like, I got nothing to do. Because in Tim's world, Tim wakes up in the middle, in the morning, writes out a list of things he's going to do that day, and then sadly, many times I ask God to bless my list. Instead of saying, God, what do you want today? I start my day off and then ask God to, you know, be fruitful of the things that I want to do. And so I didn't even, I couldn't even make a list because I wasn't even the one telling us what we're going to do. And so we go on this walk uh, to a place called Abrams Falls, and we get there, and we have about four hours that we're going to be on this trail. And so I walk to Abrams Falls, I see it, and on my way back, I look at my watch, and there's still three hours left before we're leaving. And I'm like, what in the world am I going to do? And so I go, and I, as on the way back, as we're walking, I, I find this uh, rock that's out in the middle of this river here, and I was like, well, I'll go sit on that at least, you know, do something. And so I'm sitting there, and just sitting there, and I'm like, well, I grabbed my Bible. So I read my Bible for a little bit, and I stopped, and I prayed for a little bit, and I looked down at my watch, and we still got like a good two hours, an hour and a half left, and I'm like, 
And so I tried sitting there quiet for a while and just trying to listen to different things. Because it's not even like, I sit still sometimes when I'm hunting, but I'm waiting for something to come. And so every little sound I'm trying to respond to, this time I was just sitting there and being still. Man, that was work. To sit and to be still and to say, all right, Lord, what do you have for me? What are the ways you're working? Because I know the ways that I think you should be working. I have my life all planned out. And now, God, I just want you to step in and go, okay, Tim, good plan. But just learning how to be still and to listen. And I would have to honestly say, it probably wasn't until Thursday till I even kind of got the concept of it. Because in my own mind, I struggle with these things. And, and the more I struggle with this, the more God realized. And he said, Tim, you know what? One of the reasons why you don't sit still is because then you have to face things you don't want to face. So as long as you're busy, you don't have to listen to my voice. You don't have to listen to that pride and that arrogance of planning out your day. Because even in my own life, I live like two minutes away from church. You know, in those two minutes, instead of praying, I'll listen to the radio, fill in the noise, fill in with some noise. I go for bike rides and I'd rather listen to something than just listen to the Lord speaking in my life. When I pray, I start getting distracted by the thing I'm even praying about. And these struggles in my own life of even learning how to take a day and just resting, it's a battle. We don't use the Sabbath as a gift. We view the Sabbath, we view times of rest as almost a curse to us. Instead, the Sabbath was made for life was made for restoration, was made for your body to recover and your soul to be rejuvenated. And we see that so clearly in this next passage of Scripture because the fourth idea that we're going to grapple with, the false idea, is this, that freeing someone from bondage is work. Listen to the story here. Again, he entered the synagogue. All right, quiz, who's going to be there? Pharisees, very good. And a man was there with a withered hand. Again, if we're, deal, we're dealing with an agricultural culture here, a withered hand is literally going to mean 50% of your power is gone. And if you have the opportunity, if you're picking workers, who do you pick, the guy with a withered hand or the guy with two good hands? All right, so this guy already is behind the eight ball in life as, as well. And they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Boy, they've missed the whole point of the Sabbath. What's the point of the Sabbath? Health, rest, Restoration, restoring is the point of all of that. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it, a law, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What's the point of the Sabbath, he's basically saying to them. Because who's going to respond, yep, it's right to kill somebody and we should be doing harm on the Sabbath. It's, it's a rhetorical question that everybody goes, well, duh. He's exposing to them the point of rest. He's exposing to them the point of this Sabbath. And he says, it is to heal. It is to bring restoration. The Sabbath is to bring life. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and the hand was restored. We see the beauty of this picture here, of restoration that takes place. When we were on the Sabbath as well, um, there was another pastor that was there. And when the guys were sitting around the table, we were talking about taking time 
to rest. And they were talking about using Sunday, maybe Sunday afternoon, things like that. What does it mean to actually rest and to be still? And we, they asked us, what, do, what is the Sabbath to each one of us? And it was interesting, the pastor said the Sabbath to him was work. It was a day of work. And so the challenge for him was carving out other times of Sabbath rest throughout the week because his Sabbath day that he could be resting, he's working by nature of his occupation. And does he actually spend time carving out opportunities to rest? And I find in my own life, you know, even our vacations, what do we do? We get back from vacation, we need a vacation from our vacations because we were going 100 miles an hour. And as a culture, we don't take time to rest in the gift of the Sabbath that God has given us. We're so quick to fill in. We're so quick to be busy, busyfying ourselves. And I'll give you an example of where, again, I battle with this and I, I fall short in these in many ways. And I'll give you an example. So I have a next door neighbor that I have a pretty good relationship with. And on the way down, it was about 2.30 yesterday. And in my own world, I like to be on time and I like to get things accomplished and get done and I hate running behind. And so for the five o'clock service on Saturday nights, I like to be here at least two hours ahead of time to make sure that in my mind I'm ready for everything I need to do. You know, and some people go, well, that's a little excessive, but in Tim's world, I like to make sure things are accomplished with the way I'd like to get done. My next door neighbor's there. I could have knocked on the door because Allison said, hey, why don't you invite him? And I was like, I don't know. I, you know. I'm just mulling it over. Things get away from me. It's 2.55. I'm like, we got to get going. So I drive down. I could have knocked on the door and said, hey, you want to come to church tonight? I'm preaching. But no. I had too many things of following after God. I had too many busifying things of getting my heart and mind ready for the service that I didn't have time to do a simple knock. Hey, you want to come to church? It's a struggle of mine because I'm so busy doing things that I forget to do the most important thing is to spend time with God. And we see here, interesting as well, Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, you got to understand a little bit of background here. The Herodians were a group that were following Herod. They followed almost everything Herod did. Herod, who was in, in cahoots with the Roman world, these group of uh, Israelite people had, had fallen away and have gone to follow Herod and basically were encouraging him to be the next king concept and all of that. And so you're almost the complete opposite ends of the spectrum here. We have the Pharisees who are more the conservative side, and we have the Herodians who really have nothing to do too much with the Israelite religion. They have more to do with Herod in the political world. And they decide to team up because they have a hatred towards something and someone. It's a hatred we got to get rid of God. we got to get rid of the Son of Man. Because one, he's addressing, on the, the Pharisee side, he's addressing our ritualistic things that we've added, and we don't like that. He's, he's saying he has more authority than we do, and this other side here is saying he's going to take our power. He may dethrone Herod. What is this going to look like for us then? And these battles are going to rage and we see here, which is interesting, only three chapters into the book of Mark, we see people plotting the death of Jesus. Because he came in with authority and he spoke right into this world and people responded to it. Even to the point where we see here how Jesus is looking at them and he is grieved with their hardness of their hearts. 
Son of Man right here, we miss him. A miracle where God is restoring a withered man. He's giving restoration. One of the things to point out too as well, I'd encourage you to look. Jesus goes out of his way to heal on the Sabbath. It is as if he heals seven times in the gospel on the Sabbath. I think he's trying to teach us something. The Sabbath was meant for our own healing. What would it look like if we became a church that actually knew how to stop in this rat race of American culture, stopped and spent time alone with God, listening to Him and allowing our soul to truly rest? What would my own life look like? Because just about the time you sit down and you take a deep breath, you look out and you see something more that needs to be done. We struggle in these areas, don't we? You know why? It's because we want to be in control. We want to have the answer to ourselves in everything. We don't want to listen to God. We want to say, hey, I've got it figured out. I want to be my own authority. What are the voices in your life that are filling in those silent gaps? Just like when we had 35 seconds of silence, and literally you could hear the brain power of a lot of people working, what in the world is going on right now? And that was just 35 seconds. What are we filling in? Are we allowing God's word to speak into our life? Because one thing we need to be careful, one thing we need to make sure we understand, God is king over this world. We don't make him something he already is. What we do is we submit to his authority in our lives. And the question that we have to grapple with, am I submitting to the authority of God? Because here's the challenge that happens in my own life. I have my day planned out. I have it planned out incredibly well in my mind. And then the phone rings. Or there's something else that happened. And I start to get frustrated. I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And as I start getting frustrated, guess what the part of God I'm not trusting in? The sovereign hand of God. I'm trying to say, I know more. I had it planned out, God. What would it look like if I started the days, and we started the days, all right, Lord, what do we have today? I want to be used by you today. If that means stopping something I thought I needed to do, I need to do it. Does God have authority in my life? That's the question I want to allow us to continue to keep in our mind thinking. What are the false ideas that I've allowed to fill in those areas? Dearly Father, we stand before you as a people saying help. So many times we fill in the gaps of our lives with things that are not God-honoring. Help us to be a people that know, truly know, how to be still. May moments of silence not scare us. But may in those moments of silence we learn the depth of the truth of what you called us to do. To know you. To know you in, your, in the fullest. So then we can make him known. Because that is our cry. That is our prayer. We want to make you known to the world around us. Because where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. May we be a people that are faithful to you.
in all areas. In your son's powerful name we pray, amen. If you could please stand for the benediction. The benediction is coming out of Ephesians chapter three. And there's a line here, I'm gonna read it and I'm gonna read it again for us to understand. Ephesians chapter 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all we could ask or think. We cut God short so many times in our own lives and we go, all right, God, I got it figured out. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. I release you to a week of submitting to the authority of God in your life and being willing to be led wherever he leads you. You are released.